I'm good to go. Okay, let it go. Hey everybody, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense. Well, so two things. Number one, you're very loud in my headphones. And number two, I just dropped something oh, on the counter here in the studio. So anyway, my Yikes. fault. Um, anyway, I'm Kai Rosdahl. Thanks for joining us. It's uh, Thursday today, the 25th of January. Yes, today we are going to listen back to some audio of big news stories of the week. We've got some clips lined up, so let's get to our first one. Joe Biden bet on the American worker while Donald Trump blamed the American worker. We need to know who's going to sit in the most powerful seat in the world and help us win as a united working class. So if our endorsements must be earned, Joe Biden has earned it. You or me? I'll take that okay. one, sure. Um, that was United Auto Workers President Sean Fain announcing that the union endorsed President Biden's re-election. And it has some symbolic value because Biden's image as pro-labor is very, very important to him. He very famously walked, you know, the strike lines, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which no American sitting American president had ever done before. And so this gives Biden's pro-labor image a boost and also allows the union to put resources towards getting out the vote for Biden, which is a pretty big deal. Interesting, union membership is is still on the decline overall, despite like this big year for unions mm-hmm. that we had last year. But, you know, as a share of the American population, fewer and fewer people are actually in unions, you know, and there's the endorsement does matter in terms of allocating resources, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those in the union are going to vote in that way. So in both 2016 and 2020, uh, the UAW endorsed Democratic candidates and our wonderful producers got a breakdown of how UAW members actually voted. And so according to a piece in The Conversation, in 2016, 38% of union members voted for Trump compared to 58% for Clinton. And I will say, I went to um, a steel mill during that election, and it was very fascinating talking to those guys because the union had endorsed Clinton and they were all planning to vote for Trump. Anyway, uh, and then according to the University of Michigan researchers in 2020, 40 percent of voters in union households voted for Trump compared to 56 percent for Biden. So it's not always a translation into votes as much as it is uh, resources and and money. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And and, um, uh, so this this can't possibly have come as a surprise to anybody that the UAW was going to endorse. I thought the thing that was interesting was how vocal Sean Fain was on Fox News yesterday. On Fox Mm. News yesterday, he says again, in the only word for this is dumping on on Donald Trump for his very distinct anti-labor stance. I thought that was, you know, going going right into the, the belly of the beast, as it were. Yeah, that is fascinating. I wonder, I'll be really interesting to see those numbers on the Mm -hmm. outside of this because Mm -hmm. Trump did not do much for organized labor, for sure. (laughs) But Sorry to chuckle. (laughs) I know, I was probably generous at that. Um, (laughs) um, And yet, 
that demographic, as in the demographics of Americans who tend to be part of large labor unions, not necessarily the smaller ones, do tend to skew in the demographics that tend to skew towards Trump. Mm -hmm. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in, in 2024. Right. Totally. All right, Drew. Next one, please. The president and I understand that many Americans have long felt a deeper pessimism about the economy going back far before the pandemic. Due to the longer-term trends that I described, life is still harder than it should be for the middle class in this country. To change this, our modern supply-side strategy is designed to build off of our historic recovery and continue charting a new course. Janet Yellen, of course, if you did not know who that was, really? Um, uh, uh, speaking today at the Economic Club of Chicago, I I will say that CNN, not CNBC, not Bloomberg, CNN took that speech for literally about 90 seconds and then bailed out. And you could hear the anchors come back saying, (laughs) all right, that was Janet Yellen, you know, as she got into it. Um, uh, uh, Anyway, so uh, obviously she is touting the president's economic record. Uh, She is talking about the data that came out today, gross domestic product, uh, showing that the economy grew better than 3% in the last quarter of 2023, which was way better than anybody expected. Um, It is an an interesting moment for the president and his secretary of the Treasury to be to be positioning themselves in the economic in the politics of this economy. Right. Because there does seem to be something of a tipping point about mood and it might be coming at a great time for Biden. Don't know. Don't know. Yeah, the. I think I think. All right. I'm going to break the fourth wall here. I think you should share with the audience a, a nutshell of what you and I were talking about before we turn the mics on. Yes. So I literally five minutes before we sat down, got back from spending my afternoon in the parking lot of a grocery store talking to people about this economy and the election and asking them questions like, what does a good economy look like to you? Do you think we're in a good economy? How is your economy doing? And people acknowledge that the headline numbers are good, but it does not matter. And they're like, this economy still sucks. We housing is too expensive. Our wages aren't keeping up. And, and you know, this dichotomy always shows up in, in data around this mm-hmm. where people will say their own personal economy is right. fine, but the economy overall sucks. And today what I'm hearing from people, because I was in a slightly affluent neighborhood, um, they were saying overall economy, not great. My personal economy is fine, but I know a lot of people around me Mm. who are not fine. And they are seeing it because, you know, this place that I was had a lot of relatively high income people there. It was like an organic grocery store or whatever, because for, you know, breaking the fourth wall again, commercial grocery store chains tend to not like you hanging out in their parking Mm. lot, FYI. Mm. Um, So anyway, we end up at these private stores. Um, But... The sentiment is still really negative. People don't like their options. They don't want to vote for Trump. They don't want to vote for Biden. Uh, Several folks said that they plan to stay home because they just can't stomach either one of them. Um, I and I was listening to your I guess it was a final that you did on on the regular show about the vibe session being Mm -hmm, over mm -hmm. um, with Kyla Scanlon. Mm -hmm. And 
I don't know, man. I I yeah. wonder if we're just seeing more of that bifurcation of the economy where totally could be. it's some parts of it, the upper income parts of the economy, we're like, okay, we're ready to move on. The top line numbers are good. Those numbers are what affect us because we are in the stock market. We are in the jobs that are recovering. Um, but everybody else is just like, I'm, I mean, I talked to a substitute teacher who's like, I'm never going to be able to buy a house, you know? It, yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of up and uh, I'm 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 interested to talk to more people as we get closer and closer to the election yep. to get more insights because it's all over the place right now. Totally is. All right, next up, this clip is from an interview I did earlier this week with a GOP political strategist named Heath Garrett. I would I'm working on a story about political messaging around the economy, um, and. Heath said something about how most people, again, don't really pay attention to those top line national numbers. They pay attention to their personal economy, which made me ask him about what happens when there's so few there are so few local news outlets covering the local economy and everyone is getting their economic news from national outlets about the national economy. And he said that has political implications too. the sort of lack of local journalism. There's very little coverage. And so by the time you run for Congress or the U.S. Senate in the past, you would have been conditioned by some degree and knowledge that everything you do is going to be transparently vetted one way or the other by local journalism. And that that is lacking just to pile on this point about sort of the <laughs> demise of local journalism, this week the LA Times announced it's going to lay off at least 115 people in the newsroom. A good friend of mine is one of them. Mm. A recent study by Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism found that more than half of U.S. counties ha- now have limited access to reliable local news. And, you know, I was thinking about it from this framework of what happens when the national economy becomes your local story, whether or not it's relevant. But he was making the point that without local news, these candidates can make it to the national stage without any kind of check on their behavior or whether or not they're legit. I mean, see George Santos, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, no, totally. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. Yep. I just, it's, uh, it's, these are not great times for journalism. Nobody no. listening to this needs to hear us say that because they all know it because they are consumers of journalism, yes. which, which, by the way, we appreciate. Thank you. Yes. Uh, all right. Where are we? One more? One more. So this is from uh, a special show that we did on Marketplace yesterday, uh, sort of setting up a series we're doing on the government's intervention in the economy under President Biden and, and Congress, uh, in which they are spending a ton of money to eventually get the government more involved in the economy, specifically with infrastructure and and uh, uh, green tech spending and those kinds of things. And anyway, uh, this is an interview I did with a uh, she is a history graduate student at Cal State Northridge. Her name is Natalie McDonald. And I had asked her. Um, she's a specialist in the New Deal. And I said, listen, why does the New Deal matter today? Here's what she said. If we know what was accomplished during the days of the New Deal, what is possible when the government invests in the country, in Americans, there's hope that we might be able to accomplish something similar in the future. 
So that's a pretty aspirational piece of tape. And that's how we ended the, almost how we ended the show yesterday. Because, look, we, we can do things. We can freaking do things if we want to. The question is, do we want to? Go ahead. That was a really interesting uh, epi- show episode, and I'm looking forward to hearing the rest of it. I was curious, when you were talking to folks, um, did they talk about sort of the disparate impact of the New Deal? Because I know, like, the narrative, at least in my community, when people talk about the New Deal is how, like, actively it left out black people. Um, did that come up when you were talking to folks? It, it actually did not. And and that, in retrospect, is something I should have thought of. And actually, maybe what we can do, actually, is in future episodes, not talk about talk about um, accessibility and involvement as we go forward. Right. Because yeah. because that's going to be a thing. Right. Because there are going to be a ton of new jobs there. There are already and will be a ton of new jobs. And and the catch is who gets those jobs and how do right. we make sure that that everybody gets those jobs you know right so right yeah 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 anyway. it was go back and listen y'all that's it was really interesting it's Thank more you. thinking about the new deal than i've ever done in my life except <laughs> yeah, for when watching annie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it is a hard knock anyway yes for sure that's it for today join us tomorrow for economics on tap the youtube live stream starts at 3 30 pacific 6 30 eastern and i hope that you will tune in courtney bergseeker produced today's episode drew jostad engineered it ellen rolfes newslettered it talia manchaka interned it Marissa Cabrera Sr. produced it? Sure. Keep going. Come on. Keep going. Okay. Uh, Bridget Bodner director podcasted it. I don't know. And Francesca Levy executive (laughs) directed of digital it. I can't. I kind of hosted it. I'm sorry. I hosted (laughs) it. Okay. (laughs) Thanks for trying, though. I did my best. Oh, man. We all want to be our best selves. But it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine. I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I was spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.